This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. In contrast to Congress, there is serious movement at some state capitals on gun legislation right now in the wake of the Florida shooting. This week, we're talking about a few ideas in Colorado. Yesterday, a Columbine survivor who wants to pave the way to get more guns in schools. Today, an idea on the other side, a way to stop people from getting guns when they show signs of violence. Mary Blagan is a volunteer with Colorado Ceasefire. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for inviting me. This idea is called a gun violence restraining order or a red flag warning. What exactly is this? Well, it's a law that you pass and then families and law enforcement can go to a judge in a civil court and ask for a temporary order to remove the guns from a person who is at high risk of harming himself or others. And so it is. it provides law enforcement with a tool that they don't now have, particularly in Florida, but also in the recent shooting in Colorado with the sheriff's deputy in Douglas County. The uh, police and sheriff had lots of warning ahead of time in both of those, but weren't able to actually go in and take that person's firearms. This law would allow them, through a civil court order, to do that on a temporary basis. It wouldn't be permanent, it'd be temporary. And five states have this already, yes, right? that's correct. What is your group suggesting here in Colorado in terms of what types of people could get this order? Is it a concerned family member or maybe a boss? Who, who is able to to get this order? Most of these laws are written, and obviously Colorado isn't written yet, so we have an opportunity to do this, but it would be generally family members and law enforcement. I see. Some places have mentioned health care providers, but they aren't necessarily written into most of the laws. So. And it's pretty clear why this idea is getting traction in several states uh, post-Florida. There were a lot of red flags about the shooter. This kid had 39 red flags. They should have known. They did know. They didn't do anything about it. That from President Trump. Uh, but law enforcement didn't have the leeway to do anything about it because he hadn't broken the law, as as far as we know. So that's the idea behind your effort, it seems, yes, to give more leeway. Um, still, a, a lot of gun rights people say there has to be due process here. We, we don't want law-abiding citizens to lose their gun rights, they say. But Cruz was a law-abiding citizen before he went and shut up a school. So I, I really see this fine line. Um, what kinds of behavior would make someone eligible to lose access to guns under one of these laws? Well, that would be up to the judge. But the family members through law enforcement bring their description of that person's behavior, of their recent behavior generally, but how much of a crisis they're in, how angry they are, how many guns they have, and what sort of threats they've made in the past. And then the judge looks at that evidence and decides if that's sufficient to issue this temporary restraining order. And it's a, is it pretty narrow in terms of what the judge can say in terms of what things he's worried about? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes, I, th I think narrowly tailored. I think would be the right the right word. <laughs> yeah. Judges would have to assess that evidence carefully in order for due process, and we are concerned about that as well. Uh, in order for due process to be be handled properly, they would have to look at that evidence and decide. Gun deaths of various kinds uh, are going up in Colorado, and, and they're high here compared with the rest of the country. So I wonder, is your effort just about mass shootings and school shootings, or are you preventing other kinds of shootings too here? No, and in fact, these kinds of laws in Connecticut and Indiana that have had them the longest, when they've done research on them, that they really show there is an impact on suicide rates. Because suicide is oftentimes, in Colorado, for example, 70% of the gun deaths. 
And so by a family member going and saying, I'm really concerned about my, my husband, my son, my whatever, that they're going to commit suicide, that would be another reason why this law could be called into effect. So is that where the idea of a gun restraining order originally came from with this thought to prevent suicide, or is it something else? I think it really came from a variety of places. A number of scholars at John Hopkins, University of California, Harvard, had assessed all the evidence we had to that point and said, what are the risk factors? How can we identify when someone is at that edge of doing something harmful like this? They came up with a number of things, history of violence being one of them, but we try to take care of that through our background check laws. Mm -hmm. The uh, alcohol and drug abuse is another one. And again, that becomes part of our background check laws. Being young and our law now requires people to be 21 for handguns and 18 for long guns um, is another predictor. And we in the background checks again. Uh, but anger and life crises are not in the background checks. And that's the sort of thing that families would be able to use to, to convince the judge to remove the firearms. I'm thinking about how this could work in, in practice. I, I don't think the families of the Columbine shooters had any idea what would happen there, and they got their guns illegal anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, is there any sense that this restraining order idea could have prevented the attack, let's say, at Aurora or, or other shootings we've seen recently? You know, Aurora, we, we got lots of news about that, and we do know that he was under psychiatric care. That for months they had recognized that that he had difficulties at the University of Colorado. I and I think, according to the papers, it had been reported to campus security. I don't know if it had gone beyond that to the police or the sheriffs. But at any rate, with the laws in place at that time, he had not yet broken the law. So they really could not go in and take his firearms and explosives and the other things that he had. And I know there, there's a thought of, uh, mm -hmm. of doctors, let's, let's say especially a mental health provider, like, like mm -hmm. what, what we were talking about here, could prevent someone from getting a gun. That may raise other issues. I and mean, we talked with Republican Representative Patrick Neville, who's a gun rights advocate and a military veteran. And he worries some vets uh, suffering from mental health issues may not get the help they need if they think they're going to lose access to a gun. I've talked to many health, mental health professionals who also worry that this would actually raise the stigma. And, and that's the last thing we want to do. We want to be allowing these people to actually go in and get their help and not doing anything that increases the stigma. Is that something that you've thought about? Uh... Yes, and I think mental health care providers are somewhat weary uh, about this bill, Leary, because they don't want to break patient confidentiality, for one, and they also don't want to prevent people from coming for care. But in the evaluations in Connecticut and Indiana, the largest things that were presented was suicide, and they also discovered that a lot of the people whose guns had been taken away temporarily sought Healthcare services, mental health care services, which increased the rate at which people were getting as opposed to preventing them or, or deteriorating them from. When, when you say temporarily, I, I want to back up a bit. How long are we talking about? Weeks, months? Okay. Typically, the initial order is a week to 21 days. One to three weeks. Then there's another hearing, at which time the, not only the family and whatnot, then the law enforcement, but the person whose guns have been removed can be appear before the court. And then the court reassesses that evidence at that time. If they still think it's a risk, sometimes they can be removed for up to a year. And they would also be put on the list for prohibiting further purchase uh, for up to a year. Other times they've they change their minds, you know, the, the evidence the person is out of his crisis or whatever, and, and they are allowed to have their guns back. And so in a practical terms, the, the, this order would come down, mm -hmm. and then police would go to this person's home and say, hey, you need to, you need to give us these weapons. Yeah, right. 
I want to talk about the support you've been trying to build for this in Colorado over the past few years. Mm -hmm. A conservative columnist, uh, Krista Kafer, wrote in the Denver Post last week that she supports this idea. Is there a bill in the legislature yet, or, or are you still trying to sell this idea to lawmakers? Colorado Ceasefire has been working for two years to actually sell this bill to citizens and legislatures. We've had four different meetings around the state now where we've invited people to come and learn about it. Uh, since the beginning of this particular session, we have been pushing very hard on the gun violence restraining order, although in Colorado, by the way, that's called extreme risk protection order. Um But we have been pushing very hard in the legislature to convince them that this bill would be useful. Uh, I can't report that we have one at this time on the table, but we are working toward it also with the governor's office. And I understand you're also trying to get this into the Democratic Party platform here in Colorado. Yes, we are. I think there are people in many counties around the state that will be introducing this as a platform plank. Uh, but back to the, the legislature. In some other states, including Florida, some Republicans have started to advocate for this red flag law. So it surprises me that not even one Democrat has come forward here in Colorado to sponsor this. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, of course, we're disappointed, but we do have to recognize remember in 2013, Colorado ceasefire attempted to and were successful at getting a number of bills passed. That was after the shooting in Connecticut in the school. Uh, and subsequent to that, Two Republican, two Democratic legislators were recalled, and a third decided to resign as opposed to facing further attempts to recall. And so I think the Democratic legislators in this state are understandably uh, careful about what they decide to support. And we'll talk about that more in here in just a moment. But mm-hmm. I. I want to talk about the gun owners. Have you have you reached out to them? What are their thoughts on this? We have a number of gun owners that are members of Colorado Ceasefire, actually. And um, they tend to support these sorts of rules, too. Certainly, they supported the background check. Certainly, they supported the uh, restrictions on magazine size. Uh, and they also support this bill. Um, Poll-wise across the country, and, and there are new ones coming out every day, so I can't give the exact percentages, but a good bit of the United States, including gun owners, agree that this sort of a bill is a good idea. And do you, do you think this is going to make a large difference if if this bill comes to fruition, it goes through the House and is approved? Would it make a, a sizable difference in your eyes to prevent gun violence happening in the future? Um, it should. Uh, the states that have it now, the research that has been done, has shown it takes a little while for people to know about it so that families know that they can go and use this this tool. The law enforcement can help them use this tool. But are dynamics here different, let's say, than in Connecticut or where these, these laws have already passed? That's a good question. I don't know. Colorado is known to be, you know, sort of the cowboy state, the western mm-hmm. state. Yeah. Um, and in our rural areas, we have a lot of people who do have guns and need guns in their daily life. And there there's nothing in this bill that would threaten that. Uh, it does make Coloradans a little bit more reluctant to support this kind of thing. But I think this is just common sense. It just makes sense. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Mary Blagan is with Colorado Ceasefire. We talked about the group's proposal to allow family members and others to stop people from getting guns temporarily if they show signs of violence. There's been just one gun control bill already introduced this legislative session in Colorado. It would ban bump stocks. Two other gun control laws passed in Colorado five years ago still cast a long shadow over the Capitol. Eli Stokels covered the bitter and really partisan fight over these laws and the political fallout that affects how willing Colorado lawmakers are to take on gun control even today. He wrote about it in The New Yorker recently, and he spoke to me from D.C. 
let's set the scene here. You were with Fox 31 back in 2013, and it was a legislative session following the Aurora Theater shooting. Parents of the victims wanted to see some action. What was the climate like at the Capitol for this gun control debate? It was pretty frenzied uh, once the Democrats announced that they were indeed going to pursue serious gun control legislation. It was, I think, more intense than anybody uh, in the press corps, and certainly the Democratic folks, the lobbyists, the lawmakers, the people who were geared up to push for these things, they did not anticipate seeing the Capitol just flooded with gun owners, activists, people who came to protest the bills. They did not anticipate a day in which a lot of those same people drove their cars around the Capitol honking incessantly. From basically dawn till dusk. It was a really intense atmosphere there over for, for really about a month, and, and that was just something unlike uh, I'd seen on any other legislation there, including the civil unions fight, but this was just something altogether different, the intensity, especially from the opponents. And some of the lawmakers supporting these bills even got death threats for their own safety. They did. Rhonda Fields was the, the House sponsor of the background checks bill and the magazine ban. We reported on a death threat that she received in the mail. There were other people, though, involved in this who got death threats that we did not know about. The two lobbyists who uh, were working with Mayor Bloomberg's group, Mayors Against Illegal Guns, that was sort of funding the, the lobbying and the strategy for a lot of this and working with Representative Fields. Those two lobbyists told me just last week when I was reporting this New Yorker story that they also received strange substances in the mail and email death threats. And, and that didn't get out at the time. But there was just so much animosity, and obviously there are a lot of organizations, not just the NRA, but in Colorado, the Rocky Mountain gun owners. They are the ones who were responsible for getting all the folks to you know, protest and for the horn honking that day. Obviously, they didn't tell people to go as far as you know, sending death threats to lawmakers, but they really did gin up a lot of just sort of a fever But the legislators did pass two major laws, one that requires universal background checks and another that bans magazines larger than 15 rounds. How unusual was it for a state to take these actions to actually increase regulations on guns and ammunition? It was very unusual. At the time, Colorado lawmakers thought that they might plant a flag on this issue and that other states would follow suit. That didn't really happen. There were a couple... You know, Connecticut, which is obviously where the Sandy Hook shooting had just taken place in December of 2012, Connecticut moved ahead with some tougher gun control laws as well. But that's a pretty blue state. Colorado is a western state where there's a a deep heritage and, and a tradition of gun ownership. And, you know, it seemed like this was a place where if you could do gun control in Colorado, that will really prove something to people around the the country about the fact that, you know, the NRA can be beaten. Um, And I think Democrats at the time uh, had anticipated or hoped that other states would follow Colorado's example. That did not really turn out to be the case. Was there a point in that 2013 debate when there looked to be some possible agreement between Democrats and Republicans, or was this always strictly partisan from the beginning? Not really. In terms of the lawmakers, I mean, I've been told about conversations. John Morse, the Senate president at the time, told me that when he went to the Republican leadership before the session began and said, look, we're going to pursue gun control. I would rather work with you guys than against you. Is there anything we can work on, maybe around background checks? And in Morse's telling, Bill Cadman, who was then the minority leader on the Republican side, 
was very polite and matter of fact and just told him, no, there is not. We just can't. We, we cannot give an inch on this issue and we are going to relish attacking you and fighting you on it. The governor had maybe spoken to some Republicans who he thought that they might be a little more amenable to at least the background check legislation. The Republicans he was talking to, though, in the, the donor world were simply not the same as the Republican elected officials, many of whom represent very rural districts. When the bills passed, gun owners went after individual lawmakers, and they were successful in recalling two, a third resigned to avoid the same thing happening to her. What message did lawmakers you talked with take from those recalls? I think, you know, ultimately the message of these recalls was if you're going to take on the NRA and you're going to do this, you may have the votes at the Capitol, but you're going to pay a price in some places. And lawmakers generally do not like to take risks. They don't like to stick their neck out there if it means uh, potentially facing a recall and losing their seat. The two losers of yesterday's recall elections, both are Democrats. They include the man here. This is John Morris, a former police officer. And up until yesterday, this guy was the head of the state Senate. John Morris is a unique politician because as upset as he was, and I think still is, about what happened to him? He lost by a very small margin in Colorado Springs. Turnout was really low. And I think the fact that he lost, the NRA held up his scalp, and no other states followed Colorado's lead and passed gun control, I think he views that as a real missed opportunity. It's upsetting to him. And yet, you know, he wanted to go even further than what ended up, what the Democrats ended up passing. He had a bill to hold gun makers liable, criminally liable for for crimes and deaths that took place with the weapons that they make. That bill was ultimately defeated, but, you know, Morse was pretty zealous about pursuing these things, whatever the political consequences. And so, in hindsight, you know, these bills have held up. Uh, Republicans have tried to challenge them every year. The gun debate is not over in Colorado, but it's been five years. What the Democrats did in 2013, those laws are still on the books. They're is evidence there there is data showing that you know each year a few thousand people who apply to get gun, to buy guns are denied those purchases because of criminal records but i think in that immediate aftermath when you saw a state go out on a limb pass these bills and then have two lawmakers recalled a third evie hudak sort of forced to resign and thus losing control of the state senate and they haven't won it back yet um, you know there are people who thought that was too high of a political price to pay And the reality of this is that when you take on the NRA and other gun groups, they are going to fight hard and they are going to keep fighting. And the advocates on the the pro-gun control side, they're still fighting. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Eli Stokels reported for Fox 31 in Denver. He now covers national politics and recently wrote in The New Yorker about the legacy of gun control bills passed in Colorado five years ago. Coming up, Chipotle has a new CEO, but will it be enough to invigorate the company? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Not long ago, Chipotle was on top of the burrito world. Now the Denver-based company is in dire straits. A string of illnesses in 2015 and 2016 has decimated sales. A quick turnaround never materialized. Next week, a new CEO takes the helm for the first time since Chipotle opened near DU 25 years ago. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus follows the company and joins us now to talk more about 
the upcoming challenges. Ben, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. First, I, I want to talk about uh, the outgoing CEO for a moment. Uh, can you put in context just how big a deal this change is? Right. So Steve Ells, he was a Colorado guy, went to Boulder High School, University of Colorado, classically trained chef. He eventually finds himself working in San Francisco. And there he's exposed to these kind of California style burritos. Uh, It's lots of fresh ingredients, bold flavors wrapped up in foil. And he kind of puts his spin on that. And so he pitches this to his dad, who is incredulous that his classically trained son wants to sling burritos. Uh, But his dad gives him the seed money and that one restaurant near DU became more than 2,000. And it's the 25th year anniversary of the company. We should be talking, I think, about what an amazing success story this company is. And instead, he's kind of leaving a bit in disgrace here from the company. I mean, he changed fast food, it seemed. He pioneered this fast casual movement. Right? That's right. I think he changed the way fast food is done. It forced changes, even in companies that don't share a lot in common with Chipotle, to kind of upgrade ingredients or change marketing to be fresh and organic. Um, and yes. Yeah, So he is a pioneer in the fast casual movement as well, which is kind of taken this country by storm. It's probably the fastest growing restaurant segment in this country. So who is this new CEO and why are investors excited about this guy? So what's interesting about Chipotle is that they have set themselves apart from other companies in part by marketing themselves as different and better than, like companies like Taco Bell. And what's interesting about the new CEO of Chipotle is just a few weeks ago, he was the CEO of Taco Bell. And so if Chipotle's arrow is pointing down, Taco Bell's arrow is pointing up. Taco Bell sales are doing extremely well. They passed Burger King just recently. Uh, A lot of the changes that were instituted under Brian Nickel, who is the CEO of Taco Bell, now the CEO of Chipotle, have been deemed successful, adding breakfast options to Taco Bell. The Doritos Locos Taco uh, has been uh, very successful. Um, In fact, Chipotle helped to usher in some of the changes at Taco Bell, the cantina uh, menu, which is kind of more of a fresh options uh, menu. And so I think investors and board members at Chipotle are hoping that Brian Nickel can bring some of that Taco Bell magic over to Chipotle. And that illustrates just how big a change this is for the company, right? That they really tried to set themselves apart from fast food. And now they are trying to bring some of those fast food strategies back to Chipotle to help save the company from right now, maybe at its lowest point. And and Chipotle does have an image problem here. The the company, like you say, is arguably at the lowest point perception-wise in its history. Right. And to This is because of a variety of illnesses that span almost three years. It started late 2015 uh, into 2016. Even a neurovirus outbreak as late as summer of 2017. So part of the problem for Chipotle is that the news has trickled out over a long period of time. They haven't had time to get away from the bad news when it comes to consumer illnesses. Now, the more concerning illness that affected Chipotle were the E. coli outbreaks that affected mostly restaurants in the Pacific Northwest but actually restaurants in 11 states. Dozens of people were sickened. Um, at least the FDA reports that I read didn't indicate that anybody died from this, like the jack-in-the-box incidents that happened 25 years ago. But it's terrible news for a company that built its brand on fresh, 
on locally produced, on being better than the normal. And that is its main identity. And when you lose that um, because of the illness outbreak, it's really tough to come back from that. So what has Chipotle done to turn its image around? I mean, have any of these efforts they've tried been successful? No. Um, And that's what has frustrated investors. You know, there was a big campaign to uh, bring queso to the menu, um, which was in a way capitulating uh, because Chipotle didn't want to do the typical Mexican or at least Americanized version of Mexican food fare, which is the kind of cheesy queso dip stuff. Uh, But they figured they had to do something to kind of get sales going. They added chorizo. Um, I'm not sure every location, but a lot of locations. So they tried to add a few menu items. But Chipotle, again, its brand was built on kind of simplicity. And so it's hard to go in and add a bunch of new stuff. You know, if you look at a fast food menu like Taco Bell or McDonald's, it's big. It's really complex. And Chipotle built their brand on something more basic. And so to get in there and try to muck with the formula is really difficult to do. And so we asked Brian Nickel, the CEO, for an interview at Chipotle, and they they said it's too early. He starts work on Monday. He's not really ready to start doing interviews. So we don't know what his plan is. Um, But he is known as a marketing guru. And so we expect and analysts expect changes in the way the restaurant looks, the menu, and so on. This is going to cost money, I'm assuming. There's going to be definite changes here because of this gentleman's strong background in marketing. uh, There's some big changes coming, right? Yeah, I mean, the the way Chipotle looks will probably be different. The way restaurants are laid out, the the way the menu is structured will look different. Um, Brian Nickel, who is coming over from Taco Bell, he's really seen as a genius in marketing and how he has been able to bring young buyers into uh, Taco Bell, uh, millennial buyers. And so there's some hope that he can use some of that strategy and genius to help get those buyers back into Chipotle restaurants. And analysts love this hire so much. I mean, we're really talking about Brian Nichol as kind of a, a genius because analysts love this guy. Like the stock, Chipotle stock rose 10%, 10% on his hiring. And so they're really excited that he could be the key to a turnaround for this company. Image is one thing, but are there serious legal consequences because of these outbreaks? Is, is that happening? Yeah. So that was the interesting thing. I went through the SEC filings. Uh, Chipotle is a publicly traded company. It's based here in Denver, but it's it's international. It's got more than 2,000 stores. It's got you know hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, and they report these really long SEC filings. And buried deep inside of that is that they have two criminal investigations, it appears, going on, uh, both in California and Virginia that are linked to some of the foodborne illness incidents. Uh, so this isn't just a problem uh, with image. This is a potentially criminal legal problem. Uh, we'll see what comes of that. Um, but there are also a ton of other lawsuits. So there are shareholder lawsuits. So the value of Chipotle stock fell quite dramatically on news of these illness outbreaks. And shareholders are alleging that the board and Steve Ells, when he was CEO, didn't manage the company properly. And so therefore, they are responsible for some of the decline in shareholder price. Now, they're close to settling some of these, but it's it's a lot of different troubles to go through. We haven't even mentioned the data breach. Mm. So last year, over a period of time, most Chipotle stores were hit with malware that stole credit card data from tons of customers. So this company, I, I'm trying to rack my brain, has any company in recent memory had this kind of string of bad news all at kind of a condensed period of time than Chipotle. I don't think so. So in short, this new CEO has his work 
get out for him, it seems. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. That's CPR business reporter Ben Marcus speaking about Colorado-based Chipotle. You can see more of Ben's reporting at CPR.org. Still ahead, how a woman uses art to express her struggles with identity and displacement. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Artist Eriko Tsoko often longs for her home country, Mongolia. She and her family had to leave about two decades ago, and she hasn't been able to go back and visit, partially because of her immigration status in the U.S. Her struggles with identity and displacement also show up in her art, which you can see right now at Leon Gallery in Denver. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about your art shortly. Uh, mm-hmm. But first, you were born in Mongolia in 1990. Your family fled when you were very young. And, and at that time, Mongolia just gained its independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The country was experiencing a lot of social and economic upheaval. What do you know about why your family had to leave? They had to leave Mongolia for multiple reasons. Um, my father is a pretty prolific artist in Mongolia, and he was the founder of um, the Green Horse Movement. At the time, it was um, one of the first avant-garde movements, you know, kind of introduced into the socialist society, and so it was very controversial um, for the government. So in some sense, he got exiled, um, and we fought survival, and we moved to Hungary. So I grew up in Budapest. And then I came to America in 1999 when I was eight years old. What was your childhood like like living in Hungary? Oh, it was very, um, very parallel because I grew up in a boarding school. Hmm. Uh, My parents were just working 24-7. So I sort of raised myself um, and I was exposed to like an international crowd from a young age. And is that where you began to do art? Yeah, Definitely at the school, um, they did have an arts program, but more so just from consciousness. My father, um, you know, always had art supplies around, so it was very second nature to me. My producer told me about uh, your room had a cabinet in it, and you had a box yeah. in there. Tell me about that box and why it was so important to you. It was my special art box. Um, it was right under my cubby. So I would open it and I would make thousands of drawings in there and just kind of store it, you know. So it was my secret special box. And it was obsession, it seems to you. You drew so much. And, oh, yeah. yeah. It was obsession. I mean, pencils to me were like candy, you know, like lollipops. So it was just colorful and always there. You were nine uh, when you came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. in 1999. Your family came right to Denver. Uh, Why Colorado? Uh, Colorado because um, Colorado has actually historically had the largest Mongolian population um, back in the early 2000s. Mongolians are gravitated to Colorado because of its high altitude and four seasons, very similar to Mongolia. And so – Your family immigrated to the U.S. illegally, Mm -hmm. and in 2012, you were able to apply for DACA. This is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that President Obama put in place via executive order. Mm -hmm. How did that change things for you, particularly as an artist, when you applied for that program? As an artist, I wouldn't say it really affected my career as more so I finally had the opportunity to apply for, you know, jobs, 
you know, because it's sometimes it's hard to make a living as an artist. But just to support that, I could actually I had a social security and I could apply to, you know, anything that had a salary um, and I can get a credit card and my driver's license, you know, when I was all the way up in like my mid 20s. <laughs> yeah. Now, the fate of DACA is in question right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, President Trump rescinded the Obama-era program, meaning it could end this month. Uh, Meanwhile, some federal judges have said he can't do that because his termination of it was unlawful. Um, Yet you've become much more public with your art and and your immigration status uh, now. Why is that? Um, I've been asked that question a lot recently and uh, partly because, um, you know, I've been living in hiding in fear all my life, you know, ever since I came to America and America is my home. Um, and that has affected who I am as, you know, not only a human, but as a woman and as an immigrant. And it affects my art um, and my happiness and my family, you know, and my community. And so I think part of art is to challenge society and the way that people think, and there needs to be advocacy, you know, and so I am taking a great risk in exposing myself and speaking so loudly about it. But I'm also not afraid, you know, because I have lived like that for so long. And what has that bought, you know, and so I go with the flow and the challenges come and I will face them head on. Now, some would argue that your family came to the country illegally, and therefore DACA rewards unlawful behavior. What do you say about that? Hmm. Um, I think my family, um, they're a different status than me because, you know, I now I'm an adult. And so, like, I have a different status of myself. But um, I don't think uh, DACA rewards unlawful status. I mean, you know, DACA is really just the means for the greater, like, Dreamers Act, which I wish would, you know, pass on. Um, I think DACA is really, it's like the least that, you know, the government can pass on now for people um, of my nature, who have big potential, you know, for the youth. What was the turning point for you to become more open? You said you were you were hidden. You, you kept this a secret. When did you say, you know what, no more? Yeah. Um, really, honestly, like right when DACA became into question, you know, um, and its future, because that just told me, okay, so how long is this going to happen? You know, and so just time to take a stand because as all women are right now too, um, I think it's a pivotal moment. Um, and I feel like at this moment, if not now, when? So, yeah, it's it's it, in challenge I thrive is, is the best way to say it, I think. Um, or most people do, yeah. As we said, you left Mongolia when you were very young, very, mm-hmm. very young actually. Yeah. And you've not been able to return in about 18 years uh, that's mostly because of your immigration status. Mm-hmm. Um, yet your Mongolian heritage is is really a prominent theme in your work. Why is that? Absolutely. Um, I think it's the longing, you know, um, the fact of displacement and the fact that I can't go and things are so difficult, you know, in order to go. And so the only way that I can live in my country is like Mindscape Mongolia, you know, in my in theoretically, but also through my art, you know, in my art. My country is so vivid and so alive to me. And so tell me more about this mindscaping idea. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, mindscape in a sense that I know Mongolia has changed. You know, it's a developing country, but um, economically it's also, you know, rapidly changing. And so I exist in this uh, marginal world in my head, you know, because I know that it's not real when I go there. Yet I fantasize about it because I need that deterrent and that kind of... um, 
core sense of, you know, belonging somewhere, you know, because I don't belong anywhere. <laughs> Have right. you ever tried to, to apply for this thing called advanced parole that, that works with DACA status to, to go back to Mongolia? Absolutely. Um, the only issue with that is I feel like it's very expensive for no guarantee, you know, because no matter how much you go through the process and you get the uh, approval, like that paper, uh, it doesn't guarantee your full return, you know. And it kind of is more in jeopardy, like the longer you're in America, they can just hold you at the at the border, at the, you know, airport. Now, uh, as you said, your father is an artist and he still creates work. Mm-hmm. How much of an influence has he been on you and, and what you do? Oh, wow. He has been a huge pivotal influence. You know, he's my first um, art hero, my teacher, uh, and still to this day, uh, now we're more like friend artists. You know, we kind of challenge each other and we teach each other and help inspire each other. Many of your pieces feature an image of a woman who appears to be tormented or in agony over something. This woman is often a representation of yourself, I've, I've heard. Why put yourself in your work in that way? Um, It's all about challenging the norm uh, through, you know, controversial image. It's a conscious decision. I wanted to use her. But she's also an anonymous woman. And she's also an anonymous human, you know. And so I feel that life itself is um, suffering, um, you know, all the daily struggles. But through my art, not only do I try to show this struggle, but also how to overcome it. So there's an aspect of empowerment, which is really huge for me. Can you describe for, for listeners kind of what your paintings are like and, and how people can interact with them this way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're basically uh, an anonymous figure um, in, in various acts of ailment. Uh, She's going through her emotional trials through physical obstacles. um, And I show how to, you know, overcome them. When viewers first see it, they're really, um, I think, conflicted, but also like amazed or something because there's so many details and it's a it's a folklore a narrative of its own but um there's also like a conceptual riddle you know so it kind of keeps you at stance and it takes a while to uh you know defer it and understand it and and has the work evolved over the past couple years has it always been this way um this was really birthed um a lot for my spiritual journey you know as um as a daca applicant um spirituality is huge for me and also as a as a cultural person um and so it's kind of a place of uh consolence for me and so i recently had a huge kind of like shamanic journey um mongolian shamanic journey happen in my family and so this series was really birthed when that spiritual journey began thanks so much for joining us thank you so much for having me artist eric osogo's exhibition is called wrong women myths from sky It's up at Leon Gallery in Denver through March 31st. Up next, we'll chat with two Coloradans who medaled at the 2018 Winter Games. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado was well represented this year at the Winter Olympics. In fact, it was the state with the most athletes on Team USA, and many of them brought home medals, including skier Alex Ferreira, who won silver in men's halfpipe with an unbelievable run. Ferreira just needs to pump up his amplitude. Look at the size of that first hit. So big, and whoa, twice the size of his second run right there on the big double 1080. 
puts that to his feet. One last hit. Double again. Are you joking me? Alex Ferreira taking it to new heights. The 23-year-old grew up on the Aspen Slopes, and he joins us now by phone. Hey, Alex. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So what was it like bringing that silver medal home? It is so euphoric. I honestly cannot even believe it. I I can't sleep at night still. Did, did you wear it home in the plane, or did you pack it in your baggage? How'd you get that thing home? I packed it in my bag, in my backpack. I kept it close and safe because I don't want to leave it anywhere or lose it. I'm so protective over it. It's like my little baby. <laughs> When you were on that last run and you were landing these gigantic hits, what was going through your mind on the halfpipe? Um, to be completely honest with you, when I go through the middle of the halfpipe, my music is blasting as loud as possible. I can't really hear anything. I kind of black out. So I don't know if I'm really thinking anything. The goal is always just to land, get to the bottom, always land. So I think that's always running through my head, just land, land, land. <laughs> What's, uh, what music do you play? Do you have a... Have a, have a kind of a playlist that you play for these things? Yeah, I have a playlist. Sometimes it switches off, you know, like for the first contest of the year, I listen to Four Non Blondes, the song What's Up. And then for this past one during the Olympics, I listen to this song called Drinky. It's a club song. So it changes. It changes. So that that last run where, where you, you won the silver, what was playing? Was that playing? Yeah, Drinky was playing. <laughs> You lost the gold to your own teammate, David Wise. Uh, you've been friends for years. Uh, you guys were talking after the event I saw. What, what did you say to each other after that? Honestly, David and I are quite good friends. He just came up to me and congratulated me. He said he's never seen better runs or better skiing, and I appreciated it. And I told him I'm very happy for him for winning. And It was a lot of good camaraderie and good sport out of it, to be honest. And, and how long have you guys been friends? We've probably been friends for about five, six years now. Okay. And how's that relationship? Is he a mentor, mentee type of thing, or what's going on with that? Yeah, the relationship is strong. We, do, we, uh, we respect each other. We're friends with each other. It's a little bit mentor here and there, but for the most part, we're both doing our own thing, and we just respect each other greatly. But friendly competition, of course, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I wish him to do the best. He wishes me to do the best. But at the end of the day, we're still going to hang out and go hot tubbing and play video games together, you know? And uh, I hear you have matching tattoos. Is that right? I'm looking at it right now. You are correct. <laughs> what What is your tattoo of? So it's the the tattoos of the Pyeongchang logo, uh-huh. and the first part of it expresses harmony between heaven, man, and earth, and then the little star area expresses snow sports athletes and ice and snow. And he kind of mentioned, "Do you want to get the tattoo?" And I was like, "You know what? We're here. Let's do this thing. Let's have a good time." So you did it together. We did it together. We went to Tattoo Korea, and the guy was super cool. He was from California, and he totally hooked us up. Besides winning the silver, uh, were there other highlights of the Olympics that you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. I guess before we, we walked in opening ceremonies, and then we had to leave the next day for a training camp in Japan. And during the training camp, we were supposed to be riding half pipe, but it snowed the entire time. So really, I just got to ski powder for like three or four days straight. And it was the most epic thing, beautiful thing I've ever experienced. Now, for your fans here in, in Colorado, uh, did you keep them up to date on Instagram and things like that? I mean, were you, you or was your head really in the game and kind of out of that social media sphere during this whole thing? 
Um, yeah, absolutely. I kept my fans connected a little bit, posting maybe once every four or five days. And then for the most part, I was pretty focused. So I, I think I did a good job balancing it and letting the people know what I was doing, but also making sure I knew what I was doing. This was your fourth year on the team, and you've participated in several X Games in your career. Uh, what was different about competing in a Winter Olympics as opposed to an X Game? Yeah, great question. Honestly, what I think is the biggest difference is that X Games is pretty focused on just extreme sports, and the Olympics brings in all different types of sports like curling and bobsled, which are also sometimes extreme. But I guess the biggest difference is that everybody is truly watching. It is on the world's biggest stage, and that's usually not how it is for X Games. Yeah, a lot of people watch, and we do get great views, but this is like everybody. It's like the Super Bowl for us, pretty much. Do you feel that? I tried to make it seem like a normal competition because I didn't want to give myself extra nerves. But some, to be honest with you, I couldn't not help it. It was, it was every which way around you. Everybody is talking about the Olympics. Everybody wants to be involved in the Olympics. And it's a, it was a big deal. It was hard to overcome, to be honest with you. I know your dad also kind of got a mini following because he was so into you and so into your uh, into what you were doing. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, my dad got a group of 25 kids just chanting, ole, 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 which was pretty cool. He, uh, he just wanted to get the crowd stoked and make everybody love me, so I appreciate it. And how was that having your father there? It was great, yeah. I had my whole family there. My mom was there. She's a wonderful lady. She worked so hard to get... She planned the whole trip for everybody, so I got to give it up to my mom. My grandfather <laughs> came, my girlfriend came, my sister came, my best friends came. It was truly unbelievable. All right. Now that you're back in the U.S., uh, what do you want to do? Oh, man. I just want to ski, go to the gym, and go to the steam room and hang out. <laughs> Anything else? You going to make you make commercials, do, do some stuff now? What are you doing? I'm actually filming a little TV show with Dr. Oz right now, so that's pretty cool. He is an absolute legend. I love this guy. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think I have a few more media, media things to take care of, but mainly I just want to enjoy being back home in America. Well, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Olympic skier Alex Ferreira won a silver medal in the men's free ski halfpipe event. He was born and raised in Aspen. We also chatted recently with Red Gerard from Silverthorne. He won the first U.S. medal, gold, in snowboard slope style. Red Gerard now one more jump to navigate. Will it be enough? Yeah, he puts it down on the triple court, 1440. This is how Gerard described that trick that put him over the top. It's just kind of a blackout, spin, flip moment. You, you, tell it again? Well, yeah, you're just blacking out, man. You're just kind of thinking about you know, spinning, flipping, and then landing. Gerard says before he became an Olympic champion, he really wasn't that into the Olympics. I always just grew up watching the, you know, the Tour X Games and U.S. Open and all that. Um, so, I mean, I, I just didn't really, you know, get the Olympics too much. I didn't really get what people were also crazy about about it. But, I mean, I, I definitely slowly learned how big it was. The snowboarding is uh, cool to watch for sure, but more than anything, it's more fun, I think, just to watch all the all the other sports go on, you know, bobsledding and hockey and all that. Next up for the 17-year-old gold medalist, more snowboarding. The season's not over, but he's got to find time to work on another skill. Gerard was born in Ohio, and the Cleveland Indians want him to throw out the first pitch in April. Uh, I definitely got to go throw the ball around. I probably haven't thrown a baseball around since I was like seven, so I, I got to go work on that. But I'm I'm really excited to go do that. 
Olympic snowboarder Red Girard, who lives in Silverthorne. He won the first U.S. gold medal in Pyeongchang. Next week, we'll talk with a couple of Paralympians about their quest to defend gold in sled hockey. And that's our show for today. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, and our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Have a great day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.